once you finished your journey, you've come back home and you're like, oh my God, then it's time to go back into your past and untangle all the knots, all the things that you, that traumatized you, that hurt you, that worked for you, that were amazing. By going back and making sense of these things, you can unravel these knots and in them, you'll find some something with great value. That value is wisdom. Mm. That having lived and suffered, I think suffering is the wellspring of wisdom. That it is through your suffering that you come to understand something deeply human about life, about yeah. what it is to be a person. And then that's when you get to take off the wisdom that you had from all the highs and lows that you experienced, the great successes and the failures, and give that to someone. Yeah. And say, I had this painful <laughs> knot. I had all the, this rope that it was impossible to, seemingly impossible to entangle that happened after years and years at sea of tying this to that and then whatever. And it was causing me problems. I could hardly sail anymore by the time I made it back and limped because the sails were so tangled up with this these spider web of knots across the ship. <laughs> Spent 10 years untangling this. And at the center of this knot, under the pressure like a diamond, was something valuable, was a jewel and a memento for this time that I spent and the great adventure that I went on. I'm going to give that to you. That's what you're doing. When you live, that's what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Feeding Curiosity podcast. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity explores human experience. Through conversations, we can learn from other people with their ideas, their habits, routines, and anything else they've picked up along the way. It's through these conversations that we can have blueprints to live better in any form. I hope you look at your own life with just a little bit more curiosity. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by my friend, Joe Joukowsky. As always, we have an amazing conversation. And I just wanted to say a couple things here. One is that my friend now holds a bachelor's from University of Michigan in biopsychology, cognition, and neuroscience. As he finished up his degree, he took it upon himself to continue exploring where his interests have taken him in psychology specifically. He's been exploring two very influential psychologists and psychotherapists, Eric Neumann and Camille Paglia. So in this conversation, he lays out some of the ideas that he's been exploring for himself while using these greats before him to provide a foundation. In some sense, that's what we do in this conversation is that we don't spend enough time looking back in humanity's past at the where the ways of being that we all can share or learn from at a symbolic level. Joe believes that we should be paying a deeper attention to the religions of the world and the other stories that are even older than the current modern religions, the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians and so forth. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> so for fear of using up too much time in this intro, I just love this conversation for all that it's worth. We get into religion, we get into art, and we get into parenthood. At the end of the day, life is meant to be a journey. Now here in the modern world, we get to share our journeys with so many more people than we would have otherwise. It feels really special for me to be able to share what my friends care about and what my friends think about because it feels really positive, the message that we had in this conversation. I really hope you take one gem from this conversation and run with it. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Joe Joukowsky. In, I don't know, beach in Puerto Rico mm -hmm. or the Bahamas or Florida Keys, drinking a pina colada. That's what I want. That's what I want. As we're here in the middle of I know, <laughs> Chicago when, with 50 degree weather. <laughs> I know. And yesterday was like 30s. It was like like a... Test run of winter. Yeah, we've been it's back and forth. Like Ann Arbor, we have the same weather as you guys have. So it's just back and forth between seventy degrees and forty. If it goes cold and then it's like oh oh oh, 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 oh. 
Make up your mind, planet. It's, I've become more aware at the volatility of the Midwestern weather because of so many people moving to different places in the world, like across the country. Oh, yeah. Where Jordan is, is on West Coast. And so he's like, oh, yeah, dude, it's 70 now. I'm like. And it's 70 every Sunny. <laughs> like perfect, clear skies, nothing. Right. And then our buddy Ben is over on Florida now. And he's, oh, yeah, it's like also 70, but also humid as balls. So yeah, that is yeah, Florida is <laughs> humid as balls. Nick in Colorado. And it's the sunny. It's just sunny every day. And relatively mild, I would say. Yeah. There are snowstorms that can happen, but. It is Colorado. To, it's mountainy. So what do you think? The outdoor world. If you don't own a Subaru. <laughs> You're not living life, Rob. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> Get said, out. Damn, um, at the border of, of Denver. Right. Yeah, you enter in, you drop your car in off in a lot. Too. And then, yeah, they give you a flannel, <laughs> the keys to a Subaru. And there's always kayaks on the roof of the Subaru for no I particular love that reason. I you read my mind. <laughs> I sent my brother a middle-class fancy and it was like people who own a Subaru. I sent him the same freaking one. I know which one you're talking about. So he got double tapped with that. And we were all talking because he, Nick owns a Subaru. So we were talking Officially. shit. <laughs> and he's, dude, we just stopped. And I just had a, he's like, we just had cliff bars. And he's, and he, he corrected himself immediately. Almost like two minutes later. He's like, never mind, kind bars. He's, I'm good. I dodged like, it. Oh yeah. Nice job. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Freaking. Oh, they're uh, getting him. Oh, it was so good. It's, I love that. Like, Coloradians. Yeah, is it right? the Coloradians are getting him? I don't know what that is. It's weird, too, because Colorado is like a group of nomads. There's not a lot of people who are born from in Colorado, like yeah. the natives, but there's a lot of people that go from all over the country and just end up in Colorado. And like, yeah, I don't know. It just felt like the right place for me to be. Dude, when I was, <laughs> I went to Colorado for two weeks. Two weeks, I think. When was that? After high school. Oh, interesting. Because I, this is so cringy. I was... I, it says something about my upbringing, but I was at a two week course for like Christian theology. Oh, basically. gotcha. It was like a big apologetics course where you went there and it was very, it was like they argued for all like this, like, what is the Christian stance on abortion? What is oh, now, weird. Now, what they don't recognize is that the Catholics are also Christian and, not, and everybody else is Christian. There are probably Christians who are perfectly comfortable with abortion and all that. Right. But it was like they were teaching a, frankly, evangelical fundamentalist form of Christianity for two weeks in a sophisticated, scare quotes, way. It was ideological, but at least it was, I don't know, there were arguments. There were not bad arguments. It sounds like a con like a modernized conference, but for like theological. Yeah, for like high school age ish Christians that wanted to get deep into some kind of way of thinking about Christianity. Hmm. But it, it felt very like right wing from fundamentalist Christian mm -hmm. style of teaching. And at the time, it was whatever. I don't think I remember much from the actual yeah. thing. They're, I bought a bunch of books that I never read. That just, my parents want me to go do this thing, so I guess I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, they're like, you could do this. And I, I think at the time I was super religious, so I think I was probably on board. But Was that around the time you read the I Don't Have a Faith to Be an Atheist? Yeah, that's where I got the, that book from. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I probably read that book shortly after yeah. you had read it. It's an it. interesting book, but I think... I thought that, so too. <laughs> but it, at the time, but I, th I think that it it's probably I'd have to reread it. I don't remember much of it, but I'd probably have to reread it to see if I have much of an opinion. Yeah, but I I'm always a little skeptical about these kinds of Christian apologists. It often seems not that there aren't sophisticated thinkers that are Christian, or that you can be a sophisticated Christian thinker, mm -hmm. but that this sort of fundamentalist, defensive, argumentative way of being is. The broadly apologetic it category. It feels disembodied and disconnected to me. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm disinterested as a result. <laughs> yeah. I have such a weird, I don't know. I don't know if we've really talked about religion broadly speaking, but I don't really have a huge amount of religious background anymore. Like I did all the CCD stuff. Yeah. And once I got old enough to just, for lack of a better term, think for myself and not just listen to what my parents wanted to do with it. Yeah. I would just, I don't know doesn't really hold a lot of, of my brain power to like use that as a category of a part of me as a religious person. I think that if we taught religion, so Camille Paglia, the feminist commentator who was influenced by Eric Neumann, who is a student of Jung, who both of whom influenced Peterson and have influenced oh, me now because I'm still reading Origins and History of Consciousness. Oh my I, God. Took, <laughs> I took a hiatus to start Camille Paglia's book, Sexual Personae. <laughs> And then I took another hiatus from both of them to read Master and His Emissary and finish that. And I bought five other books during this time and haven't started any of them. So I'm like, nope, okay, okay. 
here's the new rule. You don't get to start any books until you finish the last one. That's the rule. <laughs> so I finally finished. Anyway, so I finally finished That's Master's amazing. Emissary. But, but Pallia thinks that the best way, the way that we should teach the humanities is in some sense to begin with, in order to understand world culture, to begin with the great religions of the world. Oh, interesting. That, that because they've had so much influence on the world, because they're these huge mm-hmm. monumental works of art that have had such an impact or and have evolved. Right over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, legitimately hundreds hundreds of thousands of years, they just found the oldest human uh, remains in history, and it pushed back the timeline for Homo sapiens 100,000 years. Wait, really? Yeah, so they're thinking that, and they found it in Morocco. So they they think that it's like something like 300,000 years ago, human Homo sapiens were around. Oh, I think I... So that means that... The guy who wrote this book was on Rogan a year ago, maybe? Roughly. I'll have to look it up. I'll find it in the show notes, but I think I know what you're talking about. So you could imagine it like this. I'll try to put it out linearly. So mm-hmm. uh, human beings come into existence. They wake up. They have some sort of self-consciousness. They start creating culture as a result of that. Part of that culture is telling stories. Those stories over a significantly long period of time end up resulting in one religion, which co- which collides with another religion, which mm-hmm. collides with another religion that are all in a competing environment to describe the world and those right elements of the religious systems that when acted out make you more likely to survive than not yeah. are perpetuated and then this whole process of colliding and assimilating religions continues and continues and it's actually called syncretism continues and continues until finally you have something like the great religions that have survived some insane amount right. of time in part because their bodies that have taken into themselves the most functional elements of the religions that constituted it and so that would be like just broadly speaking so people can grounded which religions am i talking yeah like the abrahamic religions yep so there's a big three in the west it's Mm -hmm. islam christianity and judaism the foundation of both was judaism and then on the east it's uh taoism confucianism though it's more of philosophy uh you uh, hinduism yeah buddhism so these are huge and i think that palia is right that the way that we should teach the humanities is by beginning with uh, the religious systems and that that religious way of thinking, the way that it could be introduced by scholars huh. would be a way of talking about and thinking about religion that would be so much more fulfilling than the vapid pop music accessible version of Christianity mm-hmm. that was fed to our generation. Yeah, where it would try to be like it tried to take out the deeper stuff and make it like cool for like young kids to, I remember going to some of the non-denominational Christian places and I'm just like, this is weird. (laughs) With like fucking lights and music. Yeah. It feels like a concert almost. Put your hands in the air. It felt weird to me going there, especially because I'm, I was raised Catholic. And so Catholic, especially in Polish, Catholicism is very rigid. Yeah. Like super, if you're dressed in like wearing jeans, like when we moved out here, the idea of wearing jeans in church would be like you'd be lit on fire. Your grandmother would have to say extra Hail Marys for you just to make sure you don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was pretty bad. My mom still was like, we and did that, the that, wave in church? What is this ridiculous? And these are like op- polar opposites to me. It's One is this hyper-rigid, ordered, like, yeah. traditionalist, really conservative Yes. Version of Christianity. And then there's this super progressive, vapid. Yeah, there, there really are like, like mirrors. Yeah, version. And- one is response to the other. I talked to, I think it was my ex-girlfriend about this and her family that and their relationship with religion and that like my parents' generation would have grown up in this very doctrinal, oppressive old school thing and that they reacted to it and said, mm. okay, let's do away with this. And then they, they created this super spiritual <laughs> thing. And then our generation got the tail end of this insane spirituality that's still around. That this sort of, it's not that spirituality is bad, but without the doctrine, it's fucking hollow. It's just, yeah, it it's all touchy feely and it has no nothing ritual, nothing to historical to it. That I could say there are the churches of the modern American Christian are 20 years old yep. and they look like modern art and they have where are the cathedrals where's the history where's the symbolism in the art where is where's the depth that is entirely lacking in right because even i personally think even if you don't care like even if you don't consider yourself to be a religious person i think that you would you could still feel a sense of awe if you go to an old cathedral even here in like chicago we have some really old 
cathedrals that are monumental. Like they're humongous and you can just feel the care and the, what the feeling they were trying to invoke while building those things, just yeah. the artwork that's on the ceilings and just yeah. embroidered gold everywhere where they could. Right. And you don't even talk loud in those places because yeah. you, you just know that this place is supposed to be sacred. The whole place is a work of art. Yeah. Like I'm going to go to, I think it's the Familia Sagrada in, in Spain. Uh, Spain. Yeah. That is this psychedelic trip of a cathedral that's still being built and has been, been, it's, having been built for the last hundred years, mm -hmm. but it's that you can, here's how I think about it is that language is a explicit, reductive, abstract, concrete thing that it's representational, right? So it's semantic. So it's, it isn't that when I say apple, it is an apple. It's a representation of the apple, right? That's that the we best use word <laughs> to communicate the idea of the apple to each other so that we can just say, Abstracted we'll rely on this abstracted out concept and just use that as a stand in for the apple itself. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, you lose a whole bunch of information. So you're actually not only just farther removed from the thing itself, the the picture is worth a thousand words, right? Because it takes a thousand words to capture the picture. It yeah, takes yeah. a thousand words to capture a picture of an apple, right? So apple, the word is not just further away from the object, but it's lacking a huge portion of the information that's inherent in some sense yeah. to the object. What art is able to do is to speak more closely to the idea of God than any language, any language could right. almost by definition, because this, uh, it's almost presentative of God. It's let's create the, the closest thing, the most beautiful, uh, presentation, the most beautiful thing we can imagine mm -hmm. that we believe is in concert with God and just give it to you. And you yeah. can just be in it instead of us having to tell you all <clears throat> these things and what the modern evangelical Christian world lacks is any artwork. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of anything like in a modern sense, but like when I think of cathedrals, I, I don't know where I, I want to say it was a, like a history channel special or something like that. I can't remember where it was, but it was basically like imageries, like explaining the imagery of cathedrals, like the architecture of a cathedral, like why are they shaped the way they are and just what that means. So it's like fertility and like those kind mm. of like very, primal things that they were trying to talk about the religion of it where it's like the double arches of a cathedral is like it, it would be reminiscent of a woman laying on her back giving birth uh -huh, yeah and i don't know i can't cite it because i can't remember where i remember this from but i remember them getting really deep into the spiritual aspects of why they chose to build things in the way they did hmm. and it was like really it's like oh wow once you peel back those layers and you go just beneath the surface it's not just oh it's just a building yeah. And I feel like in the modern age, things are just, oh, it's just a building. It's just a box and you people are housed in said building. Adjacent <laughs> to its material element right. as if the artwork is just paint. It's okay, what are the chemical substratum of the paint that you're using? And that defines the work of art. It's like you've missed the point entirely. <laughs> That's the funny thing too is if you do any sort of research around like even Leonardo da Vinci – and his, you have to understand the the work he was doing, like the paper he was painting on and the t paint technology is, it's funny to say this, but paint technology they're using at that time to make colors and like him having the finesse to add really thin, almost translucent layers of like paint that would give the paint like extra depth. Mm. So, and you can, they've done this now where they take x-rays and different types of yeah. images of the paint so they can see the story told of different layers because you can't see it with your naked eye anymore. But yeah. once you do x-rays and gamma rays and whatnot, you can see like this, the layers of this masterpiece coming to life before your eyes and try to get into the mindset of what Leonardo is thinking when he was right. trying to make a three-dimensional person in two dimensions, right. as close and, and to life. E like even like, and if you confuse the paint itself for what the painting becomes, mm -hmm. then you're really missing something. You're silly, actually. You're, what's reductionist? Could you imagine if you were standing in the Familia Sagrada with this beautiful architecture and all this stuff and the, mm -hmm. the whole thing happening? Could you imagine if there was a choir singing some 2,000-year-old hymn in a language you hardly understand? Latin, probably, yeah, right? Yeah, echoing so over the walls right after something something tragic has happened in your life, like something you've just lost a loved one now somebody's singing this tragic hymn and in the echoing walls of this grand cathedral and somebody goes oh it's all a bunch of stone i'd hit him i'd be like 
You'd be like, I've lost, you've lost your fucking mind. To be honest, like as you're explaining it, and if, if all of those prerequisites were fulfilled, it wouldn't even have to be that. I think for me to be in a place such as that and to, even at the very least, it would be no, no different than me going to a sacred place in like India or a Buddhist temple and walking in there and hearing all those people worshiping and immersing myself in the thing that they really deeply connect with and yeah. resonate with as a way of being in the world that I would have no choice, but to honor whatever it was for them Yeah, and to respect it. And what's <laughs> cool is that you can transcend the practice and so, or the religion itself. And so the, the explicit element of the doctrine of the religion itself right. two, three years ago. Now me, my sister, her now husband Japan uh, and uh, <laughs> Mike, Mike and Mary all yeah. went to Japan. And so one of the nights that we were in Japan, we stayed at Koyasan, Mount Koya, it's a mountain. And it's the center of Buddhism in Japan. Really? Oh, and cool. so the top of this mountain peak is covered in all these temples and a whole bunch of monks and stuff live there. So we lived one day with the monks in oh, one of their temples. So, so cool. you live there, they give you this food, you there's hot springs. Mm -hmm. And like we went to the hot springs and all this stuff. Oh, dude, and I would love doing the that. The morning that we were leaving, you wake up really early, right? Right. Like sun is sun just, yeah, it's like the sun has finally peaked or not peaked, but just coming over the peaks. And we sat in on a, what would be a service. And it's not a sermon, mm -hmm. or if not like we have a sermon, but there was this deep chanting and lighting of incense and this whole thing and this real sense of attempted, like, of quieting. Mm. That it was, it's in the morning and everyone's silent and all you hear is the monks themselves like, mm, and going through their thing and they're burning incense and it's like this whole process. Hmm. And besides the fact that there were no chairs, so you sit on your knees and I was right. like, oh my God, I'm not built for this. <laughs> my <laughs> knees are killing me. <laughs> besides that, it was just this remarkable Grounding, quiet, grounding, peaceful moment, bringing you back into consciousness in a way that transcends Buddhism. You don't right. have to be a Buddhist to appreciate what they're telling you, and without saying any words. And that, I think that's and if the, they didn't say any words, <laughs> I would have understood it. Right. <laughs> and I, but I think that's like the exciting thing about religion because if you can take a step back and say I'm not religious, right? Because I think a lot of people in our generation are have really bad experiences with religion and get really standoffish. I guess is maybe the best word. And for good reason. It's not that yeah. there aren't shoved down our throats. There aren't things that the Catholic Church. Has. <laughs> what could that be? <laughs> what could they have done wrong? <laughs> Plenty. Like we we have a whole separate conversation on that one. Yeah. And it's to me, it's just if you can step back, and that's the one thing I really appreciate. Just like trying to understand the religions of the world in a more broader sense, yeah. rather than attributing my beliefs and say one of these is right, whatever, right? You can have your reasons and it's cool. If that works for you, awesome. But for me, I'm much more willing to look at it and be like, okay, what do all of these religions of the world are trying to say about what it means to be a human? And that's yeah, what's I, more interesting. Yeah, I don't think that it's, I get on one level of religion because there is this kind of fundamentalist doctrinal level that is almost like this chattering monkey that <laughs> hangs out in the canopy above everyone the throwing like shit at them yeah it's, there's that like vapid annoying little flittering element yeah. of the religious world that is obnoxious it's like that it with quotes, any ideas right it just quotes things to you <laughs> and it's like, it says here that it's like oh shut up there, so there's that element of it but i don't think that's the part of religion that we should be focusing on. No. And I think in part that that portion probably in the, our present moment rose defensively against materialism that was coming mm. in, in modernism and all this, but yeah, but beneath that there is this attempt by religion to not just explain the material world, but rather to resonate with being with yeah your experience that what the story is getting across and with the sort of poetry, this great poetry that was created and evolved and edited and constructed and mm -hmm. built and passed on for thousands and thousands of years. Right. Like we don't know how old the old Testament is really for God's sake. Yahweh is the, mm -hmm. is the bringing of together of two different religious gods. It's like that are, I think like Sumerian and something else. And it's like, that is a very old culture. Right. <laughs> like, Thou tens of thousands of it's years. It's so old we don't even know where it came from. And that's anymore. just the written part. How long? How old is the oral history to these stories? So mm -hmm. there's this massive passing on of tradition. Yeah. That grounds you in this great 
flowing river of history. Yeah. And it's all in it. And it makes, if you read it by trying to understand what it was to be in that world, yeah. to be a human being now and then, you can connect with people that have been dead for 5,000 years. Oh, for sure. And it's, wow, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I, I can see the humanity in this still. And that's the part of religion that is sacred there's, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I'm not, right. I'm, like, I'm not a theist, it's, but I, it, it, it is sacred. <laughs> it feels sacred. sacred, though. There's something deeper to it. And there's two thoughts I have here. First one is I would love for you to elaborate. You told the story not too long ago about the Franciscan monks. St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, and you told this story, and it was so, it blew me away, because I was like, what? To have someone like that who had such strength of character, so take it. The book, there's a book by G.K. Chesterton that's on, it's a biography of St. Francis, and it's interesting because it doesn't try to write out the facts, like the story of this thing. Oh, it's not the explicit, like he did this and then he did this and then he so it's did not this. a biography. It's, it's a spiritual, it's a biography on the spiritual end over the explicit end. It's trying to capture the spirit of this character to get you to become f- familiar with, to know yeah, who like he grasping was who he as was. a person, yeah. as opposed to the explicit things that he did. And I imagine in part that's written because I, G.K. Chesterton was writing to a Christian audience that would know all of these. Yeah, they already have some sort of, they have the biographical stuff already covered. Now it's, <laughs> let me bring you into a relationship with this character. I like that. Which is the kind of, this is Kennen over German. Weissen Knowing is, versus. To, is, they both mean to know, but Weissen means to know fact, a fact. It's the specifics of some given detail, right? Mm-hmm. It's the fact that salt is NACL or whatever. Yeah. But to canon is to be is to know the taste of salt to be familiar with it to familiar family to enter into a family relationship Mm. with the thing so what testerton is trying to do in the book is to provide you with the kind of knowing that is familiar with Mm. frank saint francis saint francis was a, a is a very much on the sort of Jesus-like spiritual side. He isn't he isn't really a Moses type figure. He's okay. a reformer exactly. He's he was a soldier. Oh, fascinating. When he was supposed to go on the crusades, God told him no. It was like you're not going. He went okay. And so he didn't go and he ended up become and he came from a very rich family, but he ended up becoming a what they call that a troubadour. A troubadour. They play music and they juggle. And oh, he's like a bard, basically. Yeah, like a bard. Go around and be like all almost like a jester. Yeah, type. kind of like that trickstery kind of character, or at least like this comical musical being. Huh. And what is it? There's a name for this. Oh, this is gonna be it's something like troubadour of God or something. He had a group. Oh, of there's people. a title. <laughs> yeah. There's a group of people that were called something like this. Chesterton oh, wow. says it, but, and he became this, he's coming more into his spirituality. So it's from soldier ordered into this kind of experience with music Aloof and play somewhat into just be. And then he takes it farther and he really gets to a point where he goes, even this isn't really the Christianity I want. Even this isn't there yet. Mm. We haven't arrived there yet. Even the music and the freedom and this court sort of connectedness. And he starts becoming more and more connected with nature. I think one of his miracles is that he could talk with animals, that he would sing with the birds and stuff. And so he left that all behind and he threw away all the riches that he had, everything that he owned, and decided to build a cathedral sort of by himself. And he wore the brown cloak. He's, this is the cheapest thing that I can find. This mm-hmm. is just bare bones. I'm going to put on a brown cloak because nothing else, everything else is vanity. And he probably brought the cheapest cloak he could find. A fucking potato sack. You know yeah, you're, I mean? at, you're, no, you're probably totally right. And <laughs> that becomes the Franciscan monks. People, they, like a magnet come to him and they go, oh my God. And there was a discussion and there was a battle in some sense in the church at the time about whether or not you should be a Franciscan yep. or a Christian. 
and there's it's almost as if a new religion was trying I was to gonna be say. born <laughs> underneath the feet of Christianity and St. Francis. It's one himself. of those turning points in history that it could have flipped the other way. Could have been Franciscans. Franciscans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to bring this up too is because all of us, when we think of monk outside of like meditative monks in the East, yeah. the monk you most likely think about is technically a Franciscan monk. Right. The, the image that you have of a European monk with yep. the shaved top of the head and the brown cloak and the rope around the thing, that's... Franciscan. That's a Franciscan monk. And that's so, why I love it. That's one of those cool things in history where this is just has been around so long that nobody <laughs> cares what it is anymore. It's been disconnected from its original storyline and is just some image that you put on a tasty beer. And everyone knows it. Or it ends <laughs> up in Robin Hood. Exactly. And that's it. But in reality, it's shorthand, right? Grand. Imagistic shorthand. <laughs> there's this huge depth to just that simp just the idea. Of a monk mm -hmm. in the West that is just, we've, it's, we've just forgotten it. And it's so cool to me too, because to hear his story, right? Like you have no, it makes so much sense to hear what his story is like that it, why people would say, wait, maybe we should be like chasing his ideal hmm. because he's so novel and new in our current, like we're closer to it. And that's part of it. I think is we, it's, it's easy when you're not connected to the past to look at the newest thing and be like, why are we chasing the old thing when we got the new thing over here? Yeah. And it took his strength of character to step in and say, no, I'm not trying to be something. I'm chasing that ideal. Right. Guys. Yeah. In some sense, St. Francis was like, no, the thing that I worship is Christ. So I'm a Christian. So if you're a Franciscan, you're a Christian. And that takes a monumental <laughs> amount of, uh, humility, maybe? I don't know what the right word is. Yeah, or at least humbleness. Awareness of self. And, yeah. And, you know what I mean? Just in the, knowing where you come humility, from. Humility, but in some sense, just a pure sincerity that one would be like, it wouldn't even be a, let me lower myself before you so that because it's necessary. It's more just, this is the state of things. Yeah. This is what led me here. He knows his own limitation yeah. enough to not be like, yes, you should. Right, <laughs> idealize there's, me there's that sincerity there and but that's what's so cool and, and what's cool but i love it too because it does result in and how beer was made in the west there's, there's oh, really? you can still buy beer from these monasteries that's so neat you can go to monasteries all over europe Wait, so is it monk's fault that we drink beer in some sense well, i don't know but i'm curious i'm gonna attribute to them and i'm gonna say thank god heroes <laughs> I'll see if I can find yeah, out thank God. like <laughs> oldest breweries in, in like Europe or something and see if I can find something there. I bet there is. There's still places that brew it. Yeah. You can buy that shit. That I think, would be um, so cool. Oh man, I don't remember the name of it. Didn't you, you have you one? To, I've had multiple. You could go to, I bet we, if we went to Armanetti's, we could find beer brewed by monks. I feel like we should go should do that today. <laughs> just for fun. What else are they going to do? They're sitting around and being. Makes sense, right? Like what else? So if you think about it, a monk back in early 1300s or something. You need to make a living so that you can do your work as a religious. And a lot of those guys were scholars, right? They were, most of their jobs was copying the Bible and scribing things because they were the first people to, that could actually do a lot of that work Yeah, because they were the only ones educated enough to do it at that time. And so if you can imagine, like they need to be able to make money. And at that time period, what did most likely people are going to need? Alcohol? Because they didn't have good sanitation for clean water right and, and beer doesn't go bad really right and if the tithe that you're giving is coming from the pocket of from peasants <laughs> you're not getting much money That's but you could imagine too it's just they build this thing together and that they're sitting around and they have all this time and they're reading the bible and when they're not reading the bible they're you want a hobby so why not figure out how to make this and why not drink and, and, and something that people are going to use regularly at what that. was the monk's name in robin hood what was that guy because he's a drunk that's the story. That monk is a drunk. Friar Tuck. <laughs> yeah, Friar Tuck is depicted as a is an alcoholic. And uh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I think so multiple versions of the story, he's an alcoholic. And then in this trope continues because uh, well, Vinland the, Saga, which is a great anime. The drunken monk is like a, a motif now. Yeah, there's Eastern version. That's the other motif. You can imagine there's a version apparently the, that the drunk style of monk where he like is accidentally really good at right, a drunken master. Yeah. Right. In the East is our friar talk in the West minus the comp. <laughs> but anyway, so Vinland saga is an anime that's, uh, it actually probably occurs around that time here. 
time period, maybe a little bit after. It, That's it has like to a do Nordic with the version, Danes. Right? Yeah, yeah, and all the Vikings coming into England and fighting there and fighting the French. And it's a fascinating historical anime. It's really well done. It, it's supposed to follow. So the Vin, the original Vinland sagas are Nordic stories told about the uh, Vikings who came over to the Americas. But mm. the fir- the beginning of this story begins with a revenge plot where one Viking kills another Viking and his son witnesses this murder that occurs. And he tries to leave. And spends the rest of his life seeking revenge. Mm-hmm. And it's this whole long epic that occurs with him. He ends up essentially being raised by the man who murdered his father with vowing that one, he's going to continuously challenge him to a duel until and finally he kills wins. him. And one of the characters, this is when mm. Christianity is being introduced into Europe in some sense. It's not, or at least up north in Europe where right. the Vikings were because they were, were, were worshipping Thor and Druid, all Druid, this. The Druidic. I think that was in England. The Druids were in England. Oh, were they? Okay. I'm getting, there might have still been I'm Druids mi- in England. I'm mixing. And I don't know enough about ancient religions in northern Europe. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I've heard so many different versions of this now but that I'm like mixing a, it all. <laughs> There's a modern folk metal band from that region. It's like called Hubel. Hubel. I'm assuming it's a Nordic name. Yeah, that that they're really cool. Their music, I'm like whatever, but they're trying. They tried to revive the music from that era, from mm-hmm. that place, and so they have like headdresses with elk. Oh, antlers the giant antlers and stuff. And like face paint that's mimicking this and big animal pelts and they play on drums and they have crazy singing. I've heard it's, it's some really cool, but. like Scandinavian like singing. It's a reminiscent to like Tibetan throat singing. Yeah. Yeah, which is not surprising because <laughs> music evolved out of voice and to some degree. So there's a there's a or it might have been there's an interesting I don't think these things were disconnected. There's an argument in Mikhail Crest's book that music preceded language, hmm. but there's a instrument called a cubies or cubies or cobies. Um, it's Q O B Y Z, I think, okay. out of Kazakhstan and or Central Asia. It's like one of the generally. oldest. It's a very old instrument because it it's followed with the nomadic tribes. And you can imagine that um, nomadic tribes that still exist today have been following their same cultural uh, heritage for tens of thousands of years. So like, they've been nomads since they left Africa. Right. right? It it just hasn't changed. So the instruments that they haven't changed either. And one of the instruments that they have, it's a stringed instrument, but it's doesn't sound like a violin it's supposed to be designed to mimic the sound of the human voice to of a voice it, <laughs> because we have multiple in some sense notes that are happening at once when we speak right because you're two vocal cords right each other that create a lack of clarity of a single note that a violin has oh. but this thing hasn't differentiated out the notes and it's in it in its construction, it, it's it's supposed to sound voiceless. Huh. If you play it in a certain way, it actually sounds like wolves. But <laughs> you get a, now you get a sense of where this musical instrument is coming from. That music wasn't just some; it was what we were. It's what we communicated with before we hmm. we got anywhere near language. It makes sense why we can connect to like animalistic things first. Why you would try to like talk about thunder or lightning or rain or volcanoes or even in the Viking culture, right? Like the, the berserker who yeah. gets themselves into a frenzy like a ravenous wolf like possessed a, a by an animal. Right. <laughs> they just fucking went off on it. Right. Now they're going crazy. But so this is the development of music is this whole big, massive emerging property like out a phenomenon. of human beings. And, and, it, it, and it continues to develop. And we've, why are, why is, why do we have symbols? Why do mm-hmm. we have drums? Because they mimic the physical natural world and the connection that we have to it is being displayed again in a more abstract form, but it still reminds us it's like of we're- <laughs> growing up in the plains. But any, so this is this ancient primordial world where music is still associated with ritual where it's where it's almost religious where it's an expression of the spiritual and unknown this strange monster ridden world where the the gods control you and put you in this berserking frenzy where Mm -hmm. they are massive forces of nature that compel you to do right thor right just think of thor he controls lightning and it's considered all powerful in some sense the most powerful thing was the nuclear bomb of the era right and it's it's not a surprise that zeus had the aegis that let him control <laughs> the lightning f- coming down from olympus it's this mm. is look wow how, it's like they had similar ideas there's commonalities amongst human beings what's what in that era of what in antiquity is the scariest fucking thing you can imagine lightning is pretty damn scary if you could harness that you'd be pretty damn scary <laughs> 
and the fact that both these far northern religions in Europe came up with the same idea as these Mediterranean religions is not surprising to me. Yeah, but, it's so cool. So it's this huge development that's going on, but there's a world there that's ancient and primordial that hasn't had contact with Christianity yet. So mm-hmm. in Vinland Saga, Christianity's coming up and you're meeting the introduction of Christianity to these to these Vikings who have no idea what the idea of love is. By the way, <laughs> there's a the, the monk that is there, which brings us back to the original point, the monk that is there is a drunk. And that drunk monk spent is a captive of the this one Viking group. And the entire time, he's trying to explain to a couple of these Vikings what love <laughs> is. And they're like, I don't know what the fuck that is. Brilliant. And so the trope of, not the, it's not trope. I don't want to reduce that. It's this almost archetype that is, is this drunk character. And it emerged out of the reality that these monks were creating beer all the time. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to arrive at this idea that you get a sense of what it was like to be around monks a thousand years ago because some of them were alcoholics. (laughs) I just got to look through like- it's looking back in time. Ball yeah. Into a thousand years before now and go, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> I, it's it's fascinating to me because now that I think about it, when, because we've been talking about this a lot with Odysseus and sagas of ages ago that still exist today. And, and you could say that even too for Beowulf, some of the oldest writings that we have of Western culture. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when you realize that's just not a story, that is you reading a story that is thousands of years old. And it's like, wait a minute, hold on. (laughs) And you can't help but think about it. Wait, they were trying to tell you something about what it was like to be them in their time period. And the fact that we can still connect at an emotional level to their stories says a lot. Right. Right? And and if you let go of our kind of explicitity. Yeah, the westernized. uh, This weird calcifying way of thinking where the gods don't exist. Therefore the God equals this. And this represents this and where it's almost like too formulaic Mm -hmm. and it's like stone. It just, it's static. It doesn't breathe. It isn't alive, but there's this, that if you let go of that way of thinking, then what you'll arrive at when you read these old stories is a greater understanding of what it is to be a human being. There's this, there's the chthonic, it's a great word. Chthonic, <laughs> That's such a cool word. <laughs> there's a chthonic element in Olympic. It's like the anti-Olympus. So this is old Greek mythology and the, and on Olympus is heaven. It's everything above. It's above the clouds. Even it's as high as you can imagine. High as in value, high as physically represented high. And then there's, the underworld and beings that live in the underworld are cathodic. They're beneath, they're underneath, they emerge from. All right. So in the story of Orestes, so Orestes is the son of Agamemnon who sacrifices his daughter in order to calm the seas during his journey to Troy. So he's going to go do the Trojan horse and all of this. It works and the, the seas are calm and all of this and he gets over there and brings his army over, fine. His wife is not happy and resents him deeply about the fact that he sacrificed their daughter. And so she takes a lover of her own while he's gone. And when he comes, when Agamemnon returns from Troy, his wife and her lover murder, Agamemnon is killed and Orestes, his son, decide is torn up about this, understandably. He misses his, you could put yourself in his shoes. He misses his sister who was sacrificed. He misses uh, his dad who's now been murdered by his mother who he presumably loved. But then Athena comes to him and says, kill your mother. That's what you have to do. Kill your mother. So she is demanding that he does this. So right, there's a godlike force that one doesn't understand arising within him an impulse that, that, but justified and right. It's even seen later in the story as, as I'll get on that, it, <laughs> that this is the right move in some sense. It's okay that he did this, but he goes and he, he does it. He listens to Athena and he murders his mother. Oh, wow. In revenge for the death of his father. But then because it's a complex story, not things don't just go, well, happy ending justice has been served. <laughs> The 
Chthonic Furies from the underworld, these the group of Medusa-like catastrophes, they come up and they hound him relentlessly. Mm. They just they will not let him go. So in some sense, because they arise from in his gut to torture him with guilt. So now the Grecian mind begins to think about what to do about this. Should he feel guilty for having done what he did? Justice was demanded for the murder of his father. And the gods were the ones that bid his father to sacrifice his daughter, which is the reason that the mom was killing the father. And right. So it's, this is a complex story about being human in a complex time. What do they do? How do they de- How does this civilization, which when the story was coming about was trying to figure out how justice works, mm-hmm. how do you arrive at justice? Ha ha. They have a trial. Oh, so that might be one of the f- earliest trials in Greek history. Like written down in a like story? Like you sit down and there's a jury and there's a bunch of people that hang out and they try to figure out if you fucked this up. And it's his peers. So there's hum- a whole bunch of human beings there. The Furies are there and Athena is there and she presides over this thing. So she's both the one that said you have to do this for justice's sake but i'm also a representation of justice and i will be at this thing so it is just to have this trial and she you can still see her imagery in in isn't that the love is blind or the the justice is blind motif right this is an athenian figure right justice in america this folding the scales the the woman just right scale blind with the scales and a sword yeah this is right she's very athenian that character and so there's justice is there. Athena, Athena is standing and presiding over this trial and they have this whole thing and it comes down to one vote and they're, it's even basically they say, no, he should be killed. He the should be left to be tortured by the Furies or no, what he did was just And the tiebreaker is Athena who says the gods themselves decide you're at ease huh. and the Furies dissipate and Arrestus moves on and he's a successful hero. That is the Greek imagination coming up with what, what is just what's right how do we as a society organize ourselves in such a way that we can continuously do the right and and that i think in that sense it's really interesting too right because it's like throughout human history it's been this story of what is doing right and it's like our attempt at a civilization level of being able to articulate how to be good as a value And and i'm not talking in like an individual sense but like the ideal good and like all the stories that still stick with us that have, in some sense, people could say it's been used and rework, repackaged over time. But why does it keep getting repackaged? It's like, why does Star Wars follow the hero's journey? Yeah. And why does it work so well? And why does it still continue to yeah, work so why well? Why did that blow up? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's right? like, because these things are, they tell you something about what it means to be a singular human at a grand scale. Because each of us is still playing out our own hero's journey, yeah. whether we want to feel like a hero or not. We That's are what, that. This is what I love. This is <laughs> I think we're failing to do now, which is, and it's a shame that Hollywood is turning in this direction because they used to have a sense of this, but it, mm-hmm. it was the epics. Mm-hmm. I liked the, I want the epics again. Yes. In some sense, recently we've got, We've taken these characters that are floating around and are, oh, good and bad and evil and this, and we brought them back down to earth. Yeah. We made things complicated and gritty and whatever. And I like that too. It's good in the short term. I think that you can't, in the meantime, forget about what's grand, that there needs to be stories like Spartacus. There needs right. to be stories. Like the symbol. You can take the character and have the granularity, but you you also have to realize that the characters are a symbol for a value yeah. or a way of being in like a psychological sense right. or a philosophical sense. It's what a human being looks like when they're pursuing one value. Mm-hmm. What does that person look like? Yeah. What's the person, what is, what does somebody who's pursuing the highest possible value look like? And the Western answer traditionally is Christ. That was the mm-hmm. idea. That's the best the West could come up with. And it motivated <laughs> an entire <laughs> Jesus, like a hemisphere of the world <laughs> yeah. for 2000 years. Okay. You know what? I could, I was like, I was going to ask what story can you think of that's better than that? And the best I got, it's pretty good. Egypt did it for 10,000 years. Oh, really? The Egyptian civilization lasted for They 10- were 
Dude, they were, years? when the Greeks and the Romans took control of them, they still believed in their old gods and everything. There's a whole thing. And in fact, Isis was constructed in Rome in uh, Venus's temple. Huh. They had because Julius Caesar was smitten with Cleopatra, him and Mark Antony. And when he brought Cleopatra to, to Rome, he was like, I'm building Isis to woo this lady inside of the temple of Venus. She cited as and people would worship Isis still in. Really? Yeah, because in Rome, man, even years and years after. Talk about cross-pollination this of massive ideas there. Ended. Yeah, because it is un, it is from the roots of Egyptian mythology that the Greek, the Phoenicians and the Greeks and then the Romans created their mythos. It's so fascinating. And then eventually the Christians who <laughs> right. relied on everyone before them. There's a lot of, from what I've seen, is there's a lot of Egyptian in the more modern, like with the Moses stories of taking from their Egyptians and blending it. Yeah. Oh, there's ancient statues of the classic Madonna and child statue mm-hmm. marble with the right Mary holding the dead Christ. Yeah. That image, that exact statue existed in Egypt. Really? Thousands of years before. Uh, it's so ISIS holding Osiris. Is it really? Same shit. What? Like this is. I'm gonna have to find side by sides and put it in the show notes because that sounds that's insane. Virgin birth. The Romans. The Roman story about how Rome was founded was with Romulus and Remus. Yep. But the mother of Romulus and Remus. So her husband was the king at the time. His brother murders him and takes the throne hmm. because she has claimed her sons would have claimed to the throne. He makes her a Vestal Virgin. So she worships Vesta. All the priestesses were virgins. They were oh. symbol of purity. So she's a virgin <laughs> yeah. without any children, but she enters into, she has a relationship with Mars. God, God of, of war. war. A woman, independent of man, has not had sex. Pure, both literally, meaning that she she doesn't have any STDs. So that's why purity gets properly brought in there. But also pure in that she hasn't been contaminated by outside values and enters into a union with a representation of value, Mars, the god of war, so strength and all these things. So the entirely independent and committed woman, uh, pure, unified with a high order value, produces Romulus and Remus, the fathers of a nation. That's the idea. And so, one, the idea of a virgin birth is not original to Christianity. In fact, Christianity brought it out of the religions from the same idea. I mean, it's that woman, pure, independent, who is committed entirely to her ideals. When you enter into that, those ideals, the sons that you have, if you've done it right, will be so powerful that they can create a nation. Dude, that's crazy. If you want a feminist ideal, fuck right there. It's <laughs> just that it's implicit and it's implicit in the story. All of these these people that criticize these things or especially the feminist critic, the modern feminist criticism of like religion is mindless. It, it just looks at the explicit things about it and then it nitpicks shit and it goes oh this is sexist it's reading the story for the words right instead of the story it's as if what matters about what i'm reading in a book is the specific lettering like what font you used instead of the moral to the story and there's so these critics it's like maybe even the way we think about it in modern terms it's so hollow maybe it's it's been like it has no vitality. Right. It has no life to it. Well, yeah. It's interesting to me because when you just explained the Romulus and Remus story, I was immediately remembered stories of the, the Virgin Mary, yeah. the mother of Jesus. And in a lot of ways, there's a really big parallels oh, there. Oh, and it's. Wait, hold on. Did Christianity come out of Rome? <laughs> <laughs> but like the crazy thing is, right? It's like the ultimate woman's empowering story. Right. A woman who has never had sex before, at least with a man is pregnant by the will of God, right. has a child, has a father who's who knows, especially, right, if this is in Islam or somewhere in that area of the Mediterranean, back then, if you had a child before wedlock, you were probably killed. There's some scary shit. Or some or crazy thing, or, or abandoned, or whatever. Jesus' father, Joseph, who's not really even his father, has enough character. Okay, so Mary is an independent woman who hasn't had sex. She's pure, who enters into 
uh, union with the highest order value, which produces a child, and that child changes the entire world for 2,000 years. What else? That is the ultimate story. I don't know how you, like, that says it, so it's like, much. It's elevating the idea of motherhood to a level of the gravity <laughs> right. behind that is unbelievable. I'm like having goosebumps like a little bit just thinking about that. I've never thought right. of it And we've been denigrating. Way. And the idea that the image of the Madonna and child is been denigrated in our culture really the the onus on, falls on modern feminists here. The burden here is on them mm. because they perhaps rightfully were just were uh, advocating for women moving to the workforce and equal pay and all these things and that this needs to happen. But they compl- they had no concept whatsoever of the mother. Mm. But this isn't surprising to me because all the women that were the second wave feminists were never moms. They, oh. they were uh, Judith Butler was a lesbian. Judith, Judith Butler and a whole bunch of other, these other people do not have, they did not in their lives display. They didn't see the value of motherhood in some sense. Or they had horrendous interaction. Oh. I would think that if feminism wants to soul search, it needs to start asking itself about the relationships of its authors with men. Hmm. Because a big portion of it, of this anger that exists in feminism. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about all feminism here. Uh, there's some portion of feminism here that is very angry, and it is angry at the patriarchy, which is a, a constructed by and for men, and I think is a result of the horrible relationships that these women had with men before they started their writing. Mm. And so they project onto the culture their issues what is with co- the man as opposed to in, in, in conflated all with masculinity as right. such, and which masculinity as such includes huge swaths of the culture. So they yeah. attack Western civilization as a patriarchy, not because Western civilization is the patriarchy they're imagining, but because they're projecting their problems with an individual man onto all of Western civilization. <laughs> what does Camille Pagula say, say here? Uh, she agrees with me. And that's she? well, she's okay. the influence that I pulled this Yeah, from, that's so. what I was, I, I felt like a Camille Pagula thought. And I was curious because, yeah. I don't know, it, it, to me, it's like just talking broadly parenthood things in general. It's the job all of us can take upon as human yeah. beings in this planet but it's the job that none of us have to apply for outside of committing a certain- Terrifying. Right. That's what I'm saying. If you are going to be a parent, I think that is the pinnacle- You should take it on as a sacred burden. Yes. Like legitimately. It's one of my favorite questions asked to guests that I know who are parents on this podcast because I think it's one of the things that most of us don't ever ask. Because most of us are like, I am now a dad or whatever, if, or I'm a mom, if you're on the other side of this. And it's, I, I think we should take it way more serious than we do. Because what you do as a parent shapes the future of that child. And I think that's what religion, a lot of the religions get, is it teaches you how to be a better parent in a lot of ways at a symbolic level. Because it, every story is all about parents and child dynamics yeah. and or interpersonal relationship between the man and the woman. It's something I feel like we don't pay attention to. Because it's just also the mom, it's just the dad. And then so people just throw it away and it's, like, it's a given. We've reduced family <laughs> dynamics down to a series of parts. Yeah. Without any a recognition that the parts are in and of themselves are greater than the whole. That there's something more to, to it than just like, mm-hmm. here is father unit. We'll call that F. Mother <laughs> unit, this is M. And there's yeah. uh, child unit one and th- two through Whatever, three. Whatever, how many siblings you have. And then, yeah, and then the, these, the, it's just it's just this mechanical formulaic way of thinking about it. But it completely, it, it, it just is mind-numbingly off. I just think at least in a sense, if we paid more attention to what it meant to mentor the next generation, Right? Because we're not around for a very long time, right? Call it 80 years on average for a single human life. Mm-hmm. You're not around for a long time. You have 25 years or so before you're like able to have kids in quotes. And then if you that is in the cards for you, you should be thinking about that. And it's that is, I know this might rub people the wrong way, but legacy. And your legacy is how you bring forth the next generation in some sense. Yeah. It's the it's something like the impact you have yeah. on the, a generation. And part of that generation is your own kids. Perhaps the most intimate part or the most intimate relationship you'll have with the next generation is your own child. <laughs> is if it isn't reevaluate. But it isn't contained to that that you that in fact part of growing older is recognizing that in some sense your purpose is to 
is to make that impact on the mm-hmm. next generation, mm-hmm. hopefully in a positive way, is to notice the, it's almost like the first portion of life is development. Well, Chapter I- <laughs> one is, is who is, it's almost like into adolescence. It's almost like just become a human being. You're not exactly works. trying to figure out who you are. It's just like becoming anything at all. <laughs> Construct. Something it's like here. it's like when you have a record and you're first making the record and you got the first notes being put on right. the record. We'll find yourself later. First, learn to walk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like chapter one is just building the human being, and chapter two is something like becoming someone, becoming something, ah, pursuing yeah. a goal, do something, and that in that process, a whole, you're going to be traumatized, be horrified. You're going to have great successes, and it's going to be an insane, tumultuous journey. That it's the waves are huge. And at some points, you're going to be very high elevated and the fall is going to be steep and this should drown. Many people do. But if you can pull through that, then you arrive at the other side or you come back to harbor. And when you're back at harbor with the ship and after the journey that you've been through and all this craziness, you went, you're like Odysseus, like going from journey, like place after place after place. Once you finish your journey, you've come back home and you're like, oh my God, then it's time to go back into your past and untangle all the knots, all the things that you, that traumatized you, that hurt you, that worked for you, that were amazing. By going back and making sense of these things, you can unravel these knots and in them you'll find some something with great value. That value is wisdom. Mm. That having lived and suffered, I think suffering is the wellspring of wisdom. That it is through your suffering that you come to understand something deeply human about life, about what it is to be a person. And then that's when you get to take off the wisdom that you had from all the highs and lows that you experienced, the great successes and the failures, and give that to someone. Yeah. And say, I had this painful (laughs) knot. I had all this rope that it was impossible to – seemingly impossible to entangle that happened after years and years at sea of tying this to that and then whatever. And it was causing me problems. I could hardly sail anymore by the time I made it back and limped because the sails were so tangled up with this, these spider web of knots across the ship. I spent 10 years untangling this. And at the center of this knot, under the pressure like a diamond, was something valuable, was a jewel and a memento for this time that I spent and the great adventure that I went on. I'm going to give that to you. That's what you're doing when you live that's what you're doing. <laughs> Dude, I love it on so many levels. Like, I think it speaks true. Like, that the something becomes greater than the sum of its parts, right? Is the suffering worth it at the end of the journey? And it, there are situations when one plus one is greater than two. And I think in those situations, bringing a family into the world is one of those opportunities. That if done right, you eventually change the world. And not only that, but you have an opportunity to change the world forever. Yeah. Because all of us who listen to this, who are speaking right now, can trace back our lineage to the first human being. Yeah. Think about that. That's millions of years. If you're alive right now, (laughs) it's not traceable back to the first human being. It's the first life that ever existed. Even better. It was you exist right now as an unbroken chain of billions of years of successful reproduction. Billions. This is part of why I'm like, I have to have a kid. I can't, fuck, like, I can't, you can't fuck this up. up. <laughs> oh, it's so good, dude. Like, I'm not going to ruin this. Oh. Like, do you know how much suffering that these people went through so that they could, their kids could survive or they could survive? And I'm going to be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can make this work. No, I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> fuck. My answer is We're more comfortable now. my ass. <laughs> can you imagine? They'd be like, are you fucking for real, guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bro, we survived famine. <laughs> Dude, we survived the Nazis. This wasn't even that long ago. <laughs> the Soviets. Oh, dude, I love this conversation. That was this, a good is, one. this is so good. Let's rank this up, wrap this one up so we can go and uh, Get some, eat some fat ass burgers. Yeah, yeah. All right. And continue this conversation probably because this is so much fun. All right. Love you guys. I'll see you when I see you. Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> Hope you all enjoyed. There's going to be a lot of show notes for this one. So be prepared. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. And I really just want to make this podcast the best podcast you listen to. Meaning, 
If there's anything that you really enjoyed or any feedback for us, I would love for you to reach out on the social medias. You can find Feeding Curiosity across LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram in the usual places just by searching Feeding Curiosity. You can also send us an email or a message through the website. You can also support the work that we're doing here, including the podcast and all other content that we produce at Feeding Curiosity by either going to anchor.fm slash feeding curiosity slash support, or you can head over to the website and hit the support button and support us directly there as well. By supporting the podcast, you effectively keep us from having to deal with sponsorship and keeping the relationship that me and you, the listener, have as honest and open as possible. As for me, I take the idea of selling products and or sponsoring products very, very serious. Honestly, I just want to provide access to information to as many people as possible with as little of a barrier of entry as possible. At the very least, if you want to do anything to support the podcast, leave a review on the platform of choosing to subscribe, like, rate it, all of that. It helps out a ton. Again, thank you all for listening and I hope you join in on the next episode.